It's good to see you all and uh, some guests with us too. Lovely to have you with us. We're making our way through 1 Samuel and uh, I've got here at the title of my notes, History Never Repeats or Does It? Um, And it reveals both God and us. Um, In more ways than one, last week Nat was crook um, or Cat came down with COVID the week before so we had a week's uh, notice that uh, preaching and things were going to change. So you had me last week. And then history is repeating this week. Um, last night I had the phone call from John halfway through youth group actually um, saying Margaret's come home halfway through her shift with COVID um, and he wasn't feeling too well and still had some work to do on his message. And uh, so it was either going to be John trying to do a recording and you'd have him on the screen or Alistair Begg this morning. Uh, that was where we left it last night. And then this morning I texted John and said, how are you going? He said, looks like it's Alistair Begg. I said, okay. So at nine o'clock, I rang him on the way here and thought, well, what if I give it a go? Uh, So you've got me um, this morning. History is repeating itself with a lot less notice, but isn't it good that God goes before us? Uh, We've been doing 1 Samuel on Wednesday nights, so I don't come completely unprepared. Um, We did go through this chapter uh, last term, actually. Uh, So I've been tweaking some of those notes for a message. But the thing is, you can actually have the best of both worlds. You see, you can go home and on your way home, on your smartphone, in your car, listen to Alistair Begg. Before you head out, look up Alistair Begg, give us a king. Um, And I do commend that message to you. John himself said it's a really good message. We should hear it. Um, I'm not claiming to be better than Alistair Begg, but I'm your pastor and he's not. Uh, So it's not with any ego that I'm preaching this morning. It's with a shepherd's heart for his flock. Um, But I do commend Alistair's uh, message to you as well. So you can listen to 1 Samuel 8 sermons all day if you like. But yeah, have a look to Alistair Begg, give us a king. Um, Worth doing. But today, it's us in 1 Samuel 8. Last week, Samuel finally broke the silence. He's spoken again, calling Israel to repentance. 20 years, remember, they've been lamenting after the ark had been taken away. Not just sad for their sin, not just remorse, but genuine repentance. And Samuel called them to put away their idols, their Baals and their Ashtaroth. And remember, we had the, uh, the Ebenezer stone set up as the Lord calls us all to wholehearted love and devotion. But Ebenezer, uh, Samuel reminds them with the Ebenezer, God has helped us this far. He's been faithful to us this far. He'll continue to be faithful to us from here on. And today in 1 Samuel 8, if you picked it up, if you've got your Bibles there, make sure it's open. Now, this is probably some time on from that moment because it begins with when Samuel became old we've gone from 1 Samuel 3 when he's born and a little boy and now he's old in the space of five chapters and we're actually going to find history repeating itself Samuel's two sons are not unlike Eli's two boys can you remember what was happening back in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel Eli's two boys were taking the fat from the sacrifice, sleeping with the women at the temple. They were doing things for their own pleasure and holding the Lord and his name in contempt. And here we read Joel and Abijah, Samuel's two sons, who he had appointed as judges, did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain, selfish gain, taking bribes and perverting justice. These are the Lord's next two leaders. This is the succession plan under Samuel. No, it's not. 
very similar context to Samuel's own call, isn't it? We have Eli and his household, the downfall of Eli, remember the seesaw, and the rise of Samuel. Well, by the end of Samuel's life, we have a rise of a king. It was into the context of Eli's two boys and their unfaithfulness, their selfish gain, that the Lord provided Samuel. Who is he going to provide for Israel now? See, it's actually this context that Israel themselves recognise they need a new ruler. Israel have recognised it. The elders of Israel, verse 4, they gather together and they come to Samuel at Ramah and they say to Samuel, it's not Samuel's bright idea, this is Israel, behold, you are old and your sons are not walking in your ways. Can't let them rule us. We've really appreciated the way you've ruled us and these boys are not going to do the same. We need a leader who is going to come under God and lead us, or maybe. I think we need to give Israel some credit. They've recognised they need a leader. You put more than two people in the room, more than one person in the room, and you need a leader, don't you? Israel have recognised they need a leader, and they recognise that Samuel's sons are not fit for that role. And so there is some wisdom in what they're asking for here when they ask for a king. Some wisdom. We give them some credit. But instead of seeking another prophet like Samuel, who's going to hear the word of the Lord and speak that to them, instead of submitting to the Lord and let him rule them as their king, they ask for a human king. Instead of asking for a leader who will mediate between them and God, they ask for a warrior king who will go before them into battle. In particular, they ask for one who will judge them, verse 6, who will lead them in that way and who will go out before them, verse 20, in battle like the other nations. And Samuel's not at all impressed, is he? He is displeased, we are told. I think it was probably more than just displeasure that Samuel would have uh, displayed. What's the problem with their request? First of all, the Lord is their king. Yahweh is their king. If you read all through the Psalms, you'll actually see this wonderful, it's not necessarily perfectly put there, but this Yahweh is king at the beginning of Psalms, and then as history goes and the Psalter goes, they reject Yahweh as king, and things go down, down, down. And then again from about Psalm 90 onwards, there's these great, well, about 93, Yahweh is king arrives again, and things improve. There's this great crescendo of praise. When we don't submit to the Lord as king, when we don't recognise him as our Lord, things go downhill very quickly. And that's what's happening here. They're rejecting God as king. Samuel is still their judge. Yes, he's old. And he and Israel know that his sons are not the right successors. He would prefer the people to seek after God and his will for the future. They are, after all, a holy nation, aren't they? They're to be set apart from the other nations not to be like them they're to be different to the other nations not conforming to the image of the world but they're to be transformed they're to be different their worship of God and God's covenant love over them and his law given to them is meant to set them apart from every other nation they're meant to look on Israel and say who would have who who is a God like their God Instead, they're looking for a king like the other nations. Ultimately, their request 
is a rejection of God, and that's the big issue, really. The Lord himself says that in verse 7, doesn't he? The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people. Samuel didn't want to. (laughs) He knew it was a wrong request. But the Lord says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Samuel's feeling it personally, isn't he? And fair enough, any leader who people say, we, don't, we want another ruler, <laughs> not you, someone else, and your sons aren't doing the right, you would feel that personally, wouldn't you? But the Lord's reminding Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me. They are rejecting the Lord as their king. Samuel's not happy about it. He's not a happy chappy, but the Lord tells them, tells him to give them what they ask. Not because God's gracious or kind or doesn't care if they have a king or not. He says to Samuel, give them what they want because they have rejected him as their king and so he is handing them over to the desires of their own hearts. It gives all the more weight to the saying, be careful what you ask for, doesn't it? Because if what you're asking for is not God's will, if it's not from God, if it's not what God has already given you, and he actually gives it to you, you actually might find you're missing out rather than getting more. And you probably only then realise what you had in the first place. Psalm 106 says this, The people soon forgot God's works. They did not wait for his counsel, verse 13. But they had wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. He gave them what they asked, but there was judgment that came with it. What does the Lord tell Samuel here? Obey the voice of the people, verse 7, because they've rejected me from being king over them. Verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. History is repeating itself, isn't it? Generation after generation. Now then, obey their voice. Only, however... You will, you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Before you give them what they ask for, tell them what it is they're going to get. And then see if they really want what they're asking for. Are there things in our lives where we're looking where the grass we think is greener? We want something else other than what the Lord's given us? Our homes, our jobs, our families, our health. Are we looking to a substitute for Christ that we think will give us something more than what God has given us in him? God's warned us, hasn't he? He's warned us what happens when we turn away from him and seek after other gods. Do we think that more money will fix all our problems? No. No. Better education might help a little bit. Will it help our children? Maybe. 
It'll help inform us. Education does that, doesn't it? But it doesn't help transform a heart. We need more than education. How many things have we tried to take matters into our own hands and choose our own destinies rather than trusting the Lord and his sovereign kingship over us? How many churches? We've got a pastor's retreat, a pastor's gathering coming up next week. It's going to be interesting to share with people. Um, our theme is momentum. What's going to carry us on? What's going to give us momentum post-COVID or while we're still <laughs> work out COVID? We're going to look to God for that? Or looked at programs and people. I'd really value your prayers for next week. I've been asked to speak at the opening of that gathering. And I'd really value your prayers as we gather together and seek the Lord's will, I trust, in that time. Because we need to know the Lord is our King. That our future is in His hands. Today, tomorrow, our destiny. And we need to know that every good gift comes from Him. Let me give us a short history lesson. To turn back to Genesis 17 for a moment. This is where the Lord is speaking to Abraham and making a covenant with Abraham, making promises to Abraham way back, okay? Centuries before David. Genesis 17, he says, I am the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Did you pick up in the middle of that? That God's actually already promised that there would be kings in Abraham's line. That there would be a king in Israel. God's promised that. He's provided for it. So in one sense, it's not wrong for Israel to ask for a king. In fact, not only did God tell them it was going to happen, he made provision for it in the law. If you flick over to Deuteronomy 17. No mention of a king in their midst, but there's a promise in that promise to Abraham. And then in Deuteronomy 17, <clears throat> in the law, God actually puts down in, establishes a law concerning the kings of Israel. Verse 14, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. God can see what's going to happen already, hasn't he, can't he? It's exactly what they ask for. When you say this, you may indeed set a king over you. But who's going to choose him? Whom the Lord God will choose. Not the people, but God. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. 
since the Lord has told you, has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. What's the one thing the king is meant to do? There's a lot of things he's not going to do there, not to do, not acquire for himself. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself. This is the one thing he is to do for himself. He's write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandments either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Next week we're going to hear about the king that is chosen. It's a far different picture to what we've just read. Because have a listen to the sort of king that Samuel now warns them of, that the Lord tells, this is the king you're going to get. You want to ask for a king? Sure. This is the one you're going to get. So from verse 10, Hear it again. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plough his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. What's this king going to do? What's the, what's the most occur, most um, word, the word that occurs most in that passage take, take, take he will take, he will take and he will take some more this is what an earthly king will cost you God is warning his people what's it going to cost them? it's going to cost them their sons it's going to cost them their daughters their hard-earned living and livelihood and property. It's going to cost them their slaves. Do you know the Bruno Mars song, Grenade? You take, take, take it all, but you never give. That's God's song. It's the song of any earthly king. They wanted a king like the other nations, and so that is what they're going to get. And that is the very opposite of what the Lord laid out back in Deuteronomy 17. He shall not acquire for himself horses, chariots, money. The Lord had made provision. He'd given instruction. He'd forewarned the people. And yet still they go against him. And in fact, what they're doing, and Egypt that they came up a number of times, didn't it? You shall not go back that way. <laughs> but what they're going to end up with as they ask for a king is they're going to be under slavery again, just as they were back in Egypt. As good as that. As bad as that. They're returning to slavery, rejecting the loving lordship of their redeemer, who's brought them out of slavery. And just like the people in the wilderness said, oh, it was better back there, these people are saying, it's better when we don't have God as our king. They're rejecting their redeemer. 
This is foolishness, folly to the utmost, refusing to heed God's own word for their own foolish desires, even when the consequences are spelled out so clearly. This is what's going to happen if you go down this path. Proverbs tells us the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. They're not listening to any advice, are they? Samuel's warned them, told them the sort of king. Verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us so that we might be like all the other nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They refuse the warning. They refuse Yahweh as their king. They want to fit in. They want to be like the other nations and they think that is going to be better. And it's a very popular personal thing, isn't it? We all like to fit in, don't we? If you're a young person... There's nothing more important, really, than fitting in, is there? So it seems. As you get older, actually, we still want to fit in as well. We just have a better way of hiding it, don't we? I can still remember being at high school back in the day where Nike, no, Jordan pumps. It was Nike, wasn't it? You know, basketball shoes. You could actually pump up and put air in your basketball boots. Everyone had them. I wanted a pair just like that because everyone else had them. These days, it's if you're in year seven and you haven't got a smartphone. Mum, Dad, everyone else has got one. I want to fit in. I want to be like them. There's a few smiles there from some young people. They know, they've had that conversation, have they? <laughs> we desperately want to fit in, don't we? We want to be like everyone else. And in one sense, whether it's a pair of basketball boots or soccer shoes or phone, in one sense, those things don't matter. But beneath them does matter. What are they standing for? What are they representing? Who are we looking to or what are we looking to for our security and our foundation and more importantly our identity, who we are? Am I who I am because I've got the right shoes on or because I'm Christ's and he is mine? Do I stand secure in him or in my new sneakers and my smartphone and fit in? And are we really made to fit in in this world like everyone else? Or have we, like Israel, been set apart? You know, sinners become saints. Do you know what the word saint means? It's a holy one, one who has been set apart by God for God. And Romans 12 tells us we're not to conform to this world. We're not to be like everyone else. We're trans- we've been transformed. And we're to go on living in that transformation in Christ. And I agree with Alastair Begg who says we often look to, we think God's the party pooper. We think God's restricting us. And there's all this stuff the world offers that would be so much better. And if I don't go out and get that, if I don't look like that, if I don't have that, I'm going to miss out. Have we heard the warning? If we don't submit to the Lord as our king and the giver of all good things, it's then that we're going to miss out. Because any other king, any other idol we follow, will take, take, take it all from us. They don't give. The Lord is the giver of life and the giver of all good gifts. 
Do we know that? Is Christ the solid rock on which we stand that we just sang? And knowing that all other ground is sinking sand, although I do don't, I'd like to be able to just sort of reach out over that quicksand and see if I can grab something before it sucks me in. Or do we trust in the foundation of Christ and everything he's given us? You know, as preachers, we always look for application, don't we? How does an Old Testament passage speak to us today, to us here? And the obvious one really is, well, don't look to other things for God, for your, as king, look to God. And that's definitely there. But I think there's another point of application here in this story. A gospel application for us all that we need to hear first before that other one. And that is the truth that you and I, each of us, every one of us, has rejected God as our king. We have. We have turned our back on him. We have looked to something else to rule our lives. We've looked to something else and someone else to give us comfort, pleasure, health, hope. We've become lovers of pleasure and lovers of money and lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Each and every one of us have asked for another one to rule in our life instead of God. But, but God, who promised Abraham kings would come from his descendants, who made a way in the law for a king who would not acquire for himself but would abide by, live by and know the law of God, the way of God, the will of God. God sent his son to be king who didn't take for himself at all, did he? What has Christ done? He's given himself up. He hasn't taken our sons and daughters and our money and our slaves and our livelihood. He's given us everything. He's the king who gives and gives and gives. Even to the point of giving up his life on the cross for us. While we were enemies, while we were still turning to other gods for our kings. So that we would actually be delivered from another kingdom. That kingdom we turned to so that we would actually be t- taken out and rescued out of that kingdom and brought into another one, a kingdom of love, a kingdom which gives rather than a kingdom which takes, under a king who serves us rather than a king who makes us slaves. That's our first application from this story. And the second one is then, that's the king we want in our lives, no other. That's the kingdom we want to live in. That's the kingdom we pray, is it not? Would come here on earth as it is in heaven? And I'm sure there are things in our own lives that we are looking to, whether it's people, pleasures, other gods, that we think, if only I had that. Friends, we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Our Father knows how to give 
good gifts to his children. He knows how to clothe the lilies of the field and feed the birds of the air. We need not look anywhere else. Next week we're going to hear who it is God has chosen, that the people choose, a bit of a mix of things going on there. As that, And by all appearances, Saul looks like the ultimate king. He stands literally head and shoulders above the rest. If there was a man in Israel who should be their king, it would be Saul, according to human perspectives. But what does he do? He takes and takes and takes. Friends, we have a king who loves us in Jesus Christ. One of the reasons he does that so well is because he knows what it is to be under one who loves him, his father. And we have him as our father. Let's not look anywhere else because we will end up missing out if we do. But we have been given so much in Jesus. Today, tomorrow, and all the way into eternity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is not rare in our day, as it was in the beginning of Samuel's. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us and through us, through all various means, Father, but most of all by your Son. Thank you, Father, that we can hear your word to us even as we read of an event that took place a millennia ago, more than two, three millennia ago. And that still speaks to us today of your love, your redeeming love, your sovereign love as our Lord and King, and warns us of the danger, of the loss, of the cost of looking anywhere but to you for life and hope and joy. And so, Father, pray that you would go on speaking to us, that we would have ears to hear, that we would not ignore your warnings, but would submit to your word and to your love, and that you would open the eyes of our hearts just to see the riches that we've received in your Son, who reigns in love over us all. Father, we thank you that you have rescued us from the domain of darkness and you have transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. May we walk by your Spirit under his Lordship and in the fullness of his love. In his name we pray. Amen.